welcome to episode 29 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. On today's show, we're talking about writing and publishing a craft book with my guest, Amy Verso. Amy is a publishing professional with over 10 years of experience in editing and commissioning craft books. Beginning as junior editor and with several years as a freelancer, Amy has worked her way up the editorial ladder to the position of content director for FW, the world's largest publishing group, working from their UK office in the southwest of England. As well as commissioning print books, Amy also leads on the company's digital content strategy for FW's direct-to-consumer brands Stitchcraft Create and I Love Cross Stitch, responsible for delivering a wide range of content from digital pattern downloads to digital magazines, video content, and online learning. Amy Verso, welcome. Hi, Abby. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk with you. And um, we first came into contact a few weeks ago uh, when I reviewed a new FW title, So Cute to Cuddle, by Mariska Voss-Bowman. Mariska designed sewing patterns for stuffed animals like me, and she has a great new book out, which I reviewed on my blog. And you were the editor that acquired Mariska's book, I believe. So I would love to start there as a concrete example of what we're talking about in today's show. What was it that you saw in Mariska's proposal, for example, that caught your eye and made you want to think about acquiring her book? Sure, yeah. I mean, Mariska's um, a great example, a great place to start. Very happy to talk about that. And Mariska came to us with a very polished proposal. She had um, completed the whole body of work before she even put it on the table for any publishers to look at. The quality of her work was exceptionally high. Uh, the finish in her actual stitching, her makes, um, was so high quality and, you know, packed with personality, you know, really uh, original and something that I hadn't really seen before. Uh, you know, we, we have a great interest in, in sewing patterns, in toy sewing patterns from our consumer business, and it really felt like this was the right, the right time to publish this content. Um, the other thing that was great about Mariska was that she had, um, she was able to do all of her own diagrams, and they were in a fantastic style, really clean and easy-to-follow style. And she also had a, an online platform. She was already selling her patterns. Uh, she had an online following through that. And we could see that there was a consumer demand for what she was producing. So how many proposals come by your desk on like a weekly basis? I mean, actually, um, what that's called in, in publishing speak is the slush pile, <laughs> which is a kind of funny term. But we don't actually have, you know, I'm not, my desk isn't, you know, towering over with, with proposals, unsolicited proposals. Well, you know, what happens more often is, you know, it, um, it's my job really to identify the key trends and things that are going that are going on in the market at the moment, and really understand that market, be part of that sort of craft community, and, and see where the gaps in that market are, and then go out and really find the talent to work with to fill the gaps. But occasionally, you know, we have a happy accident like that where you know that's kind of in my mind already, and then something lands on my desk that you know ticks all of those boxes. But in general terms, you know, I, I'm not seeing uh, you know huge numbers of unsolicited ideas coming past my my desk every week. Really, they're, they're pretty few and far between. Really. Okay, so Mariska was one of the exceptions then, and it sounds like she was an exception in two ways. One, in that she um, did send you an unsolicited manuscript, and two, in that the manuscript was really complete already. Like, I, I, I've written two craft books, and in neither case did I actually 
finished the entire body of work before submitting it. I finished maybe three projects, completed, and then wrote the rest of the proposal with the you know table flushed out table of contents and that sort of thing. So, am I right that that was sort of exceptional? Absolutely exceptional. You know that that really rarely happens. And I, I mean, I think talking to Mariska about it, she, um, you know, she she had you know a whole load of other stuff going on in her life and what she didn't want to do was put you know um uh, a few projects together with a whole load more work to do and then have to work to you know a tight schedule that somebody else was going to lay down for her because she had other things going on in her life so what she wanted to do was make sure that she had you know taken the time she needed to produce the work that she wanted to produce and then um take it to a publisher from my point of view, that was fantastic because it meant that we were able to move really, really quickly and go from that you know, initial proposal to having a published book in a much quicker time frame than we would normally be able to do. Yeah, I mean, how fast was it? So when she, from the time that you first saw it to the time that it hit bookstores? Oh, I mean, gosh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I, I do know that it was a lot quicker. Um, I mean, one of the issues in, in timings and things is that, you know, when we're printing and shipping books, we're doing that from the Far East. So you, you lose a lot of time once you've kind of finished the book in actually the printing and shipping. So we didn't avoid that that side of the delay, but it just meant that she was able to deliver the book, you know, a few weeks after we signed the contract rather than normally, you know, several months. Yeah, that is really a different, significant difference because for my first book, I had maybe seven months and my second one, I had a whole year Yeah, so the, for the content development part of it. And then it goes to the publishing house for the rest of the, the work, the design and the layout, the editing yeah, which is a lengthy process and it's Yeah, it is lengthy. It can, so it can end up being two or two and a half years from start to finish, where it sounds like you cut out maybe, you know, eight months or so yeah, of the something time. like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So, um, so of the unsolicited manuscripts that you get, which doesn't sound like it's very many, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, are, does, is, is, is hers truly an exception or are there other ones that, you know, that do, that do get through? That yeah, there are. There are. There are other ones that do get through. I mean, the ones that get through probably are the exceptions. Um, and, you know, I can talk a little bit about what is appealing to me. If that's, uh... yeah, I'd love to hear that. So, I mean, I think the most important thing in any unsolicited proposal is that the, the author has really thought about their unique selling proposition. Um, so the, the USP of the book. Uh, as I said, you know, I, it's my job to go out and identify the market trends and what those gaps in the market are. And if, and if I feel that, you know, an author has already done some of that work, that they've looked at what the competition is out there, they know that their book is different and special because of whatever the fa- their special factor is, then that really helps me that, you know, I have something solid straight away. This is the only book that's going to teach you how to X or this is got more patterns than any other book on the market or, you know, that it's got something that's a real unique hook to it, um, then it's instantly going to grab my attention. You know, if it's just, oh, here's another pretty book of patterns like 20 other books on the market, <laughs> then, you know, it's it's not going to get my attention. Um, and the second thing that really makes a huge difference is visuals, like actually having some good photographs of the work in question. You'd be amazed at how many people sort of send in um, ideas, but they don't have any kind of visual material with them. And, you know, we're talking about craft. It's such a visual medium. 
um, that, you know, if you don't send me any pictures, it's not going <laughs> to, it's not going anywhere. Right. And it's important to understand that, um, you know, if once you do sign a contract with a publishing house, it, it may or may not be that you take all of the photos. I mean, you might take none of the photos and that end up in the book and uh, a professional photographer might do all of them. Or you might take some of the step-by-step photos and a professional photographer might do the beauty shots. Or, you know, it can be kind of a combination. So just because um, you do need to have beautiful visuals in your proposal doesn't mean that you're going to be then tied to creating all of the visuals from the final book. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just really for us to see the, for me to see the quality of the work. I need to be able to see, you know, the, the makes in the same way that you would need to take a great photo of what you've made to sell in your Etsy store or, you know, to, to put on your website, on your blog, you know, it's that kind of standard that if you're going to have substandard pictures, then, you know, you're not going to get the response that you're looking for from them. So yeah, absolutely. You don't need to pay a huge amount of money to get you know, professional shots done, but you do need to have, you know, some thought as to the visuals that you send in with any proposal. They really need to, to grab my attention. But in almost every case, we would, you know, reshoot um, the beauty shots particularly um, to get those right. And even, you know, Mariska's pictures that she sent in, going back to that example, you know, she sent in some fabulous images and she had posed the animals, you know, in trees and in, in very much in the way that we ended up using in the final book so kind of the way that she initially um showed us her work we really felt that that was important to carry that through and we kind of emulated that style in the final book absolutely and how important i mean you mentioned that she has an online audience which she does i mean she has a very successful thriving um pdf pattern business and um and so how important was that size of audience so if you were for example to get a proposal from somebody or to, you know, go out and find somebody who really doesn't have that track record, who maybe, you know, hasn't been blogging for years or, you know, has just sort of started in on the scene, um, maybe just on Instagram or, you know, and, and still with a small audience, but the quality of their work is very good. How much does that weigh against them? I mean, it's, it's a tricky one. You know, having that online audience is clearly really good, but it, you know, that doesn't really make up for, you know, having fantastic makes and, you know, having a really clear USP. Some of our best-selling books have come from authors who are totally unheard of, who have no internet online presence at all. And similarly, some of our biggest failures have been from authors who've got a really really strong online presence you know that you know totally internet savvy but that audience just didn't convert because the content wasn't quite right so it's a kind of tricky balancing act but you know in general terms yes I am looking for somebody who is you know a self-promoter who is going to you know have um, a, a following that they can talk to about the book that they can share with um uh, you know, any uh, marketing that we do with, with their audience. So, you know, it definitely is a factor, but it's, it's not the be all and end all, you know, having that really strong USP is, is for me far more important than how many Twitter followers you have. Okay, good. Um, and I mean, I think that that's hopeful for a lot of people. <laughs> um, uh, and so, um, and so what about the writing, the quality of the writing, not, not necessarily all of like the pattern instruction writing, but kind of just being a writer in and of itself. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are very artistic and, um, and can really make beautiful things, but don't necessarily feel as confident 
in being a writer. And so the concept, the sort of idea of, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to write this, you know, 120 page book. Um, you know, sure, I can make all the things, but what about writing all of the all of the text? So, how much do you or could you work with somebody who felt less confident as a writer? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's not going to be uh, as a as a maker. That's not going to be your forte. You know, otherwise you'd be a fiction writer or something, and you're not. You know, you're a designer maker, so that's going to be your core strength. I mean, on any project, we uh, you know we put a team together to to project manage and to to bring the book to fruition. So, uh, you know, I work with people uh, who don't have English as their first language who write books for us. Right. So, Mariska is uh, an example where English exactly. is not her first language. Yeah. And, you know, I have others. I have some um, cake authors from the Philippines, for example. So, uh, you know, they're going to write from the heart. They're going to write what they want to express. And then we're going to team them up with a, a copy editor to really, you know, wrestle with that text and turn it into um, something that that is more understandable for readers, more engaging for readers. But, you know, we do that in partnership with them. So we, we don't put words into people's mouths. We, you know, they, they approve any um, drafts, you know, revised drafts, and they see it all in page all the way through, and they can, you know, make changes if they're not happy with the way an editor's done things. So there's always a way around that. And, you know, I think in this um, trade particularly, when, when we are thinking about people who make things rather than writing, you know, that's something that we always address. I mean, some people are brilliant at it and some people are less so but in that case we we team them with a a more hands-on editor or we team them with somebody who's a little bit more hands-off yeah um yeah that that's a that's a good thing to know I think that that could take away some of the feeling of overwhelm and as an author I can say from my personal experience that um working with an editor and kind of working with the team the whole team from um, from the editor, but also the art director and, and um, even the marketing people. So the whole process of writing a book and getting to be in contact with the professionals who, who kind of handle the publishing process is fascinating and is a huge learning process. Um, and the skills that you gain from that, you can then apply to all kinds of things that you do afterward. Um, so I, I mean, I learned a ton from, from both of my book experiences. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the key is being really open. Um, sometimes when, when you're working and you're the, you're the kind of master of your own destiny and, and everything you create is all of your own work. And then suddenly you kind of, you hand it over a little bit to, to a team and people start tweaking this and changing this. And sometimes that can feel a a bit daunting, like you're, you're not in control of it anymore and you know I just encourage authors that I work with to kind of trust in that process and trust in the people who have you know a lot of experience doing it and you know just to keep the communication open if they're not happy about things but um you know I think being open to those changes and understanding uh you know okay they want to make this change well you know understanding the reasons why and that may be it's a commercial reason that actually we found that it would sell better if it were slightly angled this way a little bit more or and just kind of trusting that process and, and going with it yeah it's very much a collaboration um i mean the, the author creates the content and obviously has a voice all, all the way through but um but to a degree you know it's it's almost like a 50 50 split you know the way the book ends up looking and the the cover, the title, I mean, there's a lot there that you do give up a degree of control um, and need to have that feeling of trust. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, 
you you see, oh, well, you know what, maybe they know from research and from experience that, you know, this cover of photo will do better than that one, even though I liked the one that was less popular. That's it, yeah. I mean, there's, there'll be all sorts of reasons behind decisions made like that. Um, you know, you, everything's subjective in, in, at the end of the day, but, you know, we tried to put a bit of science behind it. Well, we found that actually if we put a bunny on the cover, books with bunnies on the cover sell really well. So, um, yeah, those kinds of decisions are being made all the time. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, so so let's just talk about contracts for a minute. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes um, for for an artist or a maker, you know, you get the contract and, um, you know, some people work with an agent who can really help them to decipher what the contract says. Um, and some don't, some people hire a lawyer to help them, uh, advocate about the contract and some don't. So, um, so sort of explain kind of what is a typical author contract, um, spell out? I mean, what, what does it really sort of say and kind of easy to understand? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, a typical contract is, is going to um, spell out the terms and it's, it's likely to have terms around, you know, beginning with sort of delivery and approval of the, of the content. Um, it will have uh, information about the sort of grant of rights, what you're granting the publisher the right to do with, with that content. It will spell out the financial arrangements, so um, what payment you're going to receive, what royalty rates you will receive, and there's different royalty rates for different markets, um, uh, different royalty rates for print or digital. Um, there'll be um, information there about the, the copyrights of it, and then you know small print things like the warranties, the indemnities that you're you know you're not telling people to do something that's going to be harmful to them, etc. So those are sort of the big points within it, uh, the main kind of points. Um, but, you know, every or every contract is, you know, like from different companies are going to likely to be different. Um, but that's sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Okay. And so let's talk about royalties. Um, so for people who maybe have never, you know, sold something that will earn them royalties, what are royalties and how does the structure of a royalty contract work? Sure. So, I mean, a royalty is um, where you're paid a percentage of the net receipt to the publisher um, on every sale. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, what's likely to happen is that you will uh, be paid an advance up front, uh, advance against royalties. So, um, for example, we would pay you um, a fee um, to go away and finish writing the book for us and to deliver it to us. Um, we would pay you that in probably three or four payments, uh, one when we sign the contract, one when you deliver some of the material, one when you would deliver the bulk of the material, and a final payment on publication. But that then is then held on account and... Um, you don't receive any further payment until the level of royalties has uh, reached the level of the advance that you've already been paid. And only then would you start to earn additional royalties um, for any sales that happened on top of that. But that advance is, you know, that's the publisher's risk. So uh, if the book doesn't sell and it never, you know, the sales never reach that level of advance on royalty, uh, at no point are you asked to pay that back to the publisher. You know, that's, that's the publisher's risk in commissioning the content from you. But if the book goes on to be hugely successful and reprints several times and different editions, then you're likely to start earning, you know, uh, sizable royalties um, on, top of, on top of the advance. Okay. 
That's right. So, you know, how do you feel about, I mean, do you feel that in general authors should try to negotiate for the biggest advance possible? Because to a degree, right, that's the only guarantee of payment. So if you, I mean, I know of many authors who have worked with craft book publishers, um, not FW, but other craft book publishers that have gotten no advance at all. Yeah. Um, and so you work sometimes for six months or a year um, and, you know, turn in this uh, material and then with no advance in the hopes that you will earn future royalties. And, you know, some people would say, well, then you'll get your royalties quicker because there's no advance to make up. Um, but on the other side, other people would say, no, no, uh, you know, negotiate for the largest advance possible because there's no guarantee you'll ever get royalties. So this may be the only money you ever see from this content. So where do you weigh in on this? I mean, I probably, I sort of sit on the fence a little bit. I mean, I think that, you know, authors need to be paid for the work they do. I don't think anyone should work for free. Um, but I also, you know, am against sort of negotiating for the highest possible advance because I think that there's, you know, you need to to share the risk in a way with with the publisher that they're, they're taking a, a a punt on you and you know it sort of shows willing that you're, you know, that you're you're sharing that risk with them. So you know, I think being paid, uh, you know, a fair a fair amount for the work that you're doing upfront is absolutely right. But kind of trying to um, to inflate that beyond what you're, you know, the actual work that you're doing, I, I don't, I don't really agree with that. Okay. And so, what about working with an agent? Do a lot of your authors come in with an agent or bring in an agent after it looks as though, you know, they might end up be a, being able to write a book with FW? Um, that doesn't tend to happen. In my experience, that hasn't happened a lot. You know, I have worked with authors who have agents, you know, from the word go. Um, my personal point of view is that I prefer to work directly with an author rather than through an agent. Um, that's really because I feel like I can have a, a better relationship directly with the author. We can talk through their concerns. You know, I can raise uh, uh, their concerns with, you know, people further up the chain than me and just have a more immediate relationship. Whereas I think kind of having to go through an agent sometimes sort of inhibits that communication and, and makes it a little, a little bit difficult, um, you know, Agents are always going to try and push up the price so that they can earn their cut of the deal. Um, you know, and, of course, for publishers, that, that's off-putting. We're sort of paying for somebody else to be in the mix that, you know, doesn't really need to be there. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the, the conversations and the comments that we had around the blog post that we were first introduced on, Abby, was that, you know, the idea that, you know, that I think it's sometimes tempting to look at publishers as trying to, um, you know, trample on your rights and get you to work for nothing and take all the, all the money, you know, and to sort of see us as this sort of cutthroat industry, I mean, really not. It's really not like that. You know, we're all, it's all about the individual relationships. You know, we, we negotiate on all of those terms. We make sure our authors are happy, that they understand what they're signing. If they're not happy with those terms, that, you know, that we can talk about that and, and get to a place where everybody's really comfortable and that we're not going to try and damage their, their business that they've already got running, their pattern business or whatever that is, you know, that we can work together in partnership. I think that's really key to understand. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting. So I don't have an agent, and I negotiated both of my deals myself. And I will say that I learned a lot just from that negotiation process because um, I had multiple publishers for each one, each of my books that were interested, and I got a chance to talk with the acquisitions editor at all of the different houses and learn from them what they were looking for, and it was really fascinating. And then when it came time to um, to sign the contract. I actually hired a lawyer locally, and um, he looked over my contract and then had a conference call with me and explained all of the – and raised questions for me that I, I would have missed. And then I went back and was able to sort of raise those questions and get them answered to my liking. And after that, I did feel confident that I was, you know, getting what I, what I wanted and, um, and then didn't have an agent who was going to then take 15% of exactly. the – earnings from the book in perpetuity i mean i think that that's i think that's a really sensible approach it is a you know it is a contract and you know that is gonna um frighten people so i think the way that you've approached it would be a brilliant way to fit up for anybody to do it really yeah because you know a craft book doesn't earn all that much money okay like i mean you can earn some money from it and and some of them do very well but um but we're not talking about you know um uh, like having a, a giant uh, earnings from from any one book, most likely. Um, and so, if you're if you're hiring an agent, you you know there's pros to it for sure. And I know many craft book authors who absolutely uh, say that you know having an agent is the best thing that they've ever done. But you do have to realize that you're giving that person a cut of um, the advance and of all of the royalties forever. Exactly. And you know, as you say, you know, I think. I think gone are the days when, you know, you could sit and write craft books for a living and that would be, that be your sole living. You know, having, writing craft books is about an extension of what you're doing, about an extension of your brand or your, you know, your, your, whatever other services um, you're offering. It's not really about, uh, you know, just living off your royalties alone. I love that idea. I do think it's an extension of your brand and I do think it's worth doing even if it means that you um, aren't able to spend as much time on your own business for a period of time because there, there is something still very valuable about having a book. Um, and like I said, the, the learning experience of writing the book is also very valuable. Yeah, I mean, as a marketing piece, just, uh, you know, to raise the profile of your of your brand and your business and, you know, you as a, as a designer, you know, it's a fabulous marketing piece for you. It is. It's, and it's fun. Um, you know, it's just fun. It's exciting. You know, there's something more exciting than having your mom go into the bookstore and find your <laughs> book. <laughs> That's exciting. You know, I mean, let's just face it. So, so let's talk about copyright a bit, because this is a question that people often ask me and, um, and are often confused by. So the work that gets published in a book. First of all, that work has to be new work that's never been published elsewhere. Is that right? Well, I mean, I'm, I, I, this is a fairly sticky subject. So, um, and I, I'm not uh, an expert in copyright law. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to talk from my personal experience rather than knowing, you know, everything there is to know about this. But I mean, from my point of view, I, I don't know that it has to never, ever have been seen anywhere before. You know, you can bring things like new editions. You could perhaps bring a print edition of a work that had been previously published as an ebook before, but had never been a print book before. So, uh, you know, and I, and I have experience of working on both of those things. Uh, so I think that's a slightly gray area that it can have, you know, it's brand new work that's never, ever, you know, as long as that's open on the table and everybody knows 
um, you know, the life cycle of this content, where it has been, what, you know, and, and, it, and is happy with that, then, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's as black and white. Okay. All right. And then once the work, though, is published in the book, who then owns the copyright to that work? So if I write a pattern book and, um, and FW publishes it, who owns the copyright to the patterns? The copyright remains with the author. The copyright remains with the author, um, but the, uh, the rights to publish it pass to the publisher. So um, it's absolutely copyright, Abby Glassenberg, uh, for the, on the pattern. But in terms of the photography, if, we've, if the publisher has shot the photographs and done the layouts, then the layouts and the photography would be copyright the publisher. And the publisher has the exclusive right to publish that content. Okay. So here's a, here's, here's a sticky issue. So I allow people who purchase my PDF self-published patterns to sell things that they make from my patterns. So if yeah. you buy my giraffe pattern and you make 15 giraffes, you are welcome to set up a stall at a craft fair and sell those 15 giraffes with like a little tag, you know, saying that the pattern is mine and pointing me, pointing people to my pattern. But other than that, you're welcome to do it. And I think it's fantastic. So um, what about if somebody, if I publish that giraffe pattern in, uh, or let's say another one, an elephant pattern in a book, um, mm -hmm. can somebody then make those elephants from the book and sell it or not? Since I allow it and I own the copyright, but perhaps FW has a different policy. No, if you if it's your pattern and uh, you allow it, then we print. You know that we we honour that. So, for example, Lisa Lamb, who writes uh, bag making books, very very successful bag making books. Uh, you know that's her policy too. She she's happy for you to sell uh, handmade bags that you've made from her patterns, uh, and that is what we print in the copyright that uh, that you're allowed to do that. But she doesn't allow copyright for you know manufacture mass producing you know, factory line of these uh, designs coming out so uh it, it that's down to the to the author i mean that's my experience from from here fw may not be the same across all uh publishing houses but you know the, the standard line that we would put in any uh copyright notice was that the items in this um book are copyright and they mustn't be made for commercial purposes um but authors can choose to override that if they wish. Okay, so interesting. So I never chose to override that, but perhaps I should have, but I didn't. I didn't know. I, I wasn't thinking ahead. I didn't have a PDF pattern business when I wrote my book, so I wasn't thinking ahead toward, toward this moment and, mm -hmm. and the sort of contrast in what I allow. Um, but, that, but that is interesting because, um, because from both of my books, it doesn't spell that out. So I guess if, if it was different from the standard, it would be spelled out in the book itself. So if people are wondering, if they're at home now and they you know, love this particular book and are wondering, could they sell the things from that particular book, um, and they should look at the copyright notice printed there. And if it doesn't um, have that sort of more exceptional idea of, yes, you may, then you should assume, no, you may not. I, I think that's pretty safe to say that, yeah. Okay, and I think for the most part, the answer is no, but perhaps there's some authors who override that. 
Yes, I think that that's my experience. That's a handful have have chosen to do that, but on the whole, people like to um, rights protect their work. Good to know. That is super good to know. Okay, so um, so let's just talk a little bit about how publishing is changing, um, because this is something we touched on in the blog post that first introduced us, and um, and craft publishing is definitely changing, at least from my perspective. So. Um, I mean, it's becoming more digital. There's uh, incorporating a lot more video and online learning. And I think that that's really affecting the market, affecting authors' decisions. You know, can I afford to write a book? Should I write a book now? Um, You know, affecting customers. Should I buy a book versus buying, uh, you know, a digital pattern and where I can get things a la carte and all of that sort of thing. So what are some of the changes that FW has incorporated into how it's publishing books now versus how it was publishing books 10 years ago, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no surprise that the, the print book market is in, you know, is in huge decline. I think it's down around 10% this year on last year, and it was down last year and the year before. So, uh, you know, a real really, really challenging time for publishers. The ebook market, you know, is just really not bridging the gap in the way that, um we had anticipated that it would. So, you know, print revenues are down really across the board. And, you know, that's, you know yourself when you want to, you know, learn something, you need to find out something, you know, do you get in your car and do you drive to Barnes and Noble and buy a book or do you, you know, reach for your tablet and type it in, you know? So, um, it's sort of finding that sweet spot between, you know, what content people are really prepared to pay for, and the content that they can get for free um, on YouTube, say. So, you know, what people tend, what we found, you know, people tend to want to pay for is, you know, really high quality instruction and patterns. You know, people will pay for good patterns. So that's not to say that, you know, the print book is dead in any way. You know, we're still seeing, you know, amazing success stories on books, but it's absolutely much more of a challenge than than it's ever been, really. So, you know, F&W, we're sort of, uh, we like to think that we are really leaders in, in, in this change and, you know, innovating in this craft space. And one of the ways that we've done that is um, we changed our business from, um, you know, being a print business to being a sort of 360-degree business, bringing in uh, e-commerce, bringing in, you know, digital product, bringing in video, and making, you know, much more uh, rounded portfolio than just solely relying on print books. And at the same time, we communitized our business, which sounds very grand, but um, we used to have a books division and a magazines division and an events division and uh, and. Um, we sort of turned that on its head and we said, actually, we don't want to be thinking of ourselves in these sort of silos and we're going to communitize our business so that we have a craft business and we have a writing business and we have a design business. Uh, you know, all of our magazines, all of our books, all of our events, uh, all speak to this customer directly within their, uh, within their community. And then from that, you know, we then start to learn about that, that customer far, far more than if we're just, you know, thinking about books or thinking about magazines. Uh, we have, can have that direct relationship with the consumer. So, you know, our websites where we're selling our content, our product, you know, 
for example, in craft, we're, you know, we're selling our books, we're selling our ebooks, we're selling our PDF patterns. We're also selling the fabrics and the notions and everything that you need to be able to make those patterns directly to the consumer and having, uh, you know, a really intimate relationship with them because we can see what they're buying, we see what they're responding to. And we're not just sitting, you know, in our ivory tower making books uh, merrily all day. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it's sort of forced you to really restructure and to think about being a more holistic company that provides more than just print books, but actually even provides um, materials and and fabrics and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to innovate and trying to, you know, find ways to work better with our, with our community, to really serve the community. What, what do our crafters want, you know, and how can we give it to them in, in the way that they want it? Um, and where are they? Where, you know, we'll meet them on Facebook, we'll meet them on Etsy, we'll meet them, you know, wherever they are out there. So, you know, we're doing things like that. We, we, um, started doing ebook bundling for example so if you buy um a, a, a print book uh, on pre-order from us we'll give you the ebook the pdf ebook free so you can have your pdf ebook instantly while you're waiting for your print book to come in the post which is kind of nice little um uh touch that we can give to our customers and that they can't get from anybody else they can't get that on amazon they can't get that um from their local bookstore so um, we can we can offer that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a creative. You know, you, it forces you to be creative in a way, um, and that's actually nice to get a, an ebook immediately while you're waiting for the print book. Um, yeah, that's kind of cool. So. so- so we're doing that, and then we're also, um, and this is, you know, a contentious issue, really, um, from, from the blog post that we were commenting on, um, that, you know, we, we're finding that people are far more interested in um, what we call content snacking. So, you know, they don't want a huge meal of a book in one go. They want to, you know, snack on smaller chunks of that book. So, you know, breaking it down into the individual patterns from the book or the, you know, the taking the technique section out and, and, and having that as a separate um, ebook um, really helps people to just be able to have the content that they actually want without having to necessarily make the bigger purchase of the whole book if they don't want it. I think it's something about the digital format maybe where, um, you know, you, as you said, like ebook sales have not made up the difference in print sale, the, the decline of print sales in the way that, you know, had been maybe hoped or predicted. And maybe that's because with digital format, people don't want the whole the whole uh, ebook. They would prefer to pick and choose. And so, breaking it up. Although you know, to me, that sort of riles me because I don't think a book should be broken up into pieces like that. But uh, clearly, from a sales perspective, um, you're saying that that's what people will buy. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we're finding. Yeah, that's what people will buy. But also, you know, um, video, uh, the content consumption, we can't say you can't read a book now, you have to consume content, by the way. (laughs) Um, You know, it's all going video. Uh, The way that we're learning, the way that we're getting our video, uh, our our how-to instruction is all down to video. So, uh, you know, as we go forward, you know, we have a lot of video in our our business, but, you know, more and more emphasis uh, is going to be placed on video. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to see, um, you know, video incorporated into eBooks so that it really takes advantage of that digital format where you can embed 
high-quality video of the author herself working with the materials and um, supplementing what's in the book. I think that would be totally great and exciting. And I also am a huge fan of book trailers. And I think, um, I know I didn't have a trailer for the first book. And for my second book, I actually um, paid for the trailer. I mean, I hired a local uh, videographer, and he helped me to make the trailer. And although I had the blessing of my publishing house, there was no money to put toward it. I mean, there was very little money to put toward marketing uh, generally, and so that certainly wasn't part of it. But I used part of my advance for that, and I really felt like it was well worth it and something that um, I would recommend to people. I mean, there's very few craft book publishers now that are actually paying for trailers for their authors, but I do think it brings the book alive. And um, and more than just like a slideshow of stills from the book, but an actual real video, kind of like the Kickstarter videos that you see where the author is talking and showing you um, what she's made and why she's made it and, um, and kind of giving you a real behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. All that kind of content is fantastic as, as marketing assets. I mean, we try to do things like... Google Hangouts with our authors. Uh, so we have a kind of online book launch where we'll do a broadcast a live event using Hangouts, um, all those kind of things. We'll, um, you know, we will do those um, slideshow um, book trailers as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, video is just where it's at, really. Yeah, totally. All right, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of this sort of um, tips and ideas and understanding, you know, increasing everybody's understanding of, of how writing a book um, really happens because I think there's a lot of mystery there and a lot of assumptions and sometimes they're just not true. So, um, so that's really incredible. So thank you for that. Um, um, and I wanted to jump in to our recommendations. Um, I asked you to put together, uh, three recommendations of things that you're loving right now, Amy, and I'd love to hear them. So, um, so your first one is a book. Yay, books. (laughs) And it's called Edward's Menagerie. That's right. So, um, this book is really special and it does happen to be published by us, but I, you know, I, which does give me a bias, but I do just believe this is such a special book. So the author of this book, um, she basically had never crocheted before. She was um, about to give birth to her first child. She was like two weeks off her due date and she picked up a, a crochet hook for the first time and she made this crochet bunny out of nowhere. And she sort of started playing with the pattern and then um, working it out. And then she had an elephant and then she had a zebra and then she had that. And she just kind of carried on and carried on until this collection of 40 patterns was complete. Her son, Edward, for whom it's named, um, was about 12 months old by the time she'd, she'd finished uh, the collection. But it's such a really personal, lovely story. And the animals are just dreamy they're all made in like natural alpaca yarns and they're just beautiful so I'm really loving that book at the moment that sounds terrific and I I I do know how to crochet now and I have um crocheted two stuffed animals so (laughs) um and is I haven't looked at the cover is the bunny on the cover there is a bunny on the cover see the bunny uh, on the cover man they sell (laughs) he's um he's amongst uh, uh, a big pile of animals okay (laughs) Okay, super. Um, Okay, that's a good one for for people to check out. And I'm assuming probably in the in the um, the the introduction and the the beginning chapters, um, there's some, uh, you know, show some instructional material showing you how to crochet if you've never crocheted before. Yeah, absolutely. But the the great thing about them is that they're really perfect for beginners. They they only use um, 
double crochet, which is single crochet in the US. So it's you literally need one stitch and uh, one ball of yarn and um, you're away. And like, you know, she'd never crocheted before when she started. So she's written them in a way that's really easy. Yeah, that's why I love stuffed animals because they're really easy to crochet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I'm not like super good at crochet yet. So, um, okay. And then you wanted to uh, recommend an app. Yeah. And I have not used this app, but I'm super excited about it. So is it called Magisto? Magisto, yes. So this is just really cool. I mean, I only found it um, a couple of weeks ago, but I've been sort of tinkering and playing with it ever since. It's a bit addictive. Um, so it's an automatic video editor app. So if you shoot uh, some kind of run-of-the-mill average footage, um, you can then run it through the, their automatic editors with a variety of themes and music and different options, and it turns it into really, really nice um, feels really professionally edited with kind of filters on it and effects and it looks it's really cool i really love it all right that's cool and it might be good for like um i don't know i'm i'm working on um some new patterns for christmas and yeah you know when you launch a pattern sometimes it's fun to do something different like do some video or you know just kind of just to i don't know make it a little bit more clickable when you're sharing it on social media like something new to check out, something new to see. And I guess you could poss possibly upload that to Instagram video too. Oh, do you know? yeah, I guess you could if it was short. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, um, I haven't been sharing my creations yet. I'm not quite there. <laughs> but um, but no, yeah, that's I mean, cool. you can just take, you know, what you would think as fairly uninspiring video and suddenly it, it magically transforms it into something really nice. So right. have cool. a look. I'm going to play with it. <laughs> um, okay. And then the, your last recommendation is um, kind of an innovative use of washi tape. Well, this is right. So this is a recommendation that came to me from a creative friend. So I'm just kind of paying it forward here. So, uh, you know, I, um, I love to sew. I don't do it enough and I'm not very polished. And, um, you know, even sewing in a straight line sometimes for me can be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> so, um, this friend said to me, Oh, we just put, um, stick a piece of washi tape, um, along the, the quarter inch mark along your sewing machine bed and all the way along. And then, uh, it just makes it easier to, you know, line things up to, so you can keep an eye, check that it's still straight and, you know, so simple, but it has had a massive effect on, on my sewing ability. So I was very grateful. Yeah, totally. And the nice thing about washi tape is the sticky residue on it doesn't come off. So you can, it's just totally removable. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you don't, if you want to change, you want to, you know, uh, a, a different width guide, you can, you can whip it off, you can move it. Yeah. I just, I just, it really changed my confidence level at being able to sew long, straight seams. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. That's It's great for top stitching and things like that where you, you know, your stitches are going to show and you really want to make sure it's straight. So yeah, yeah. that's a good one. Thank you. Um, so this has been great, Amy. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoy talking to you. You too. Um, so you can visit FNW or FW Media online at fwcommunity.com. And um, you can find out more about their products. And you can also send Amy a message on Twitter. She's at Amy Verso, and that's A-M-E, Amy with an E, A-M-E-V-E-R-S-O, Amy Verso on Twitter. 
um, which is great. So, um, so thanks so much. No problem. I look forward to hearing from some of the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there are people out there who have questions or ideas or comments and would love to get in touch with you. So thank you for sharing your contact information with everybody. That's fine. Yeah. So you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy this show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. 